Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Death in Cambodia, Life in America. Um, I guess I'm not quite ready to go into retirement because I've decided to launch another episode here. Um, Somebody that I had met uh, within the past year that I stumbled upon and I felt like I really had to interview. Her name is Mira Tokshu. Did I say that correctly? Or I think the American accent could probably be Torsha. (laughs) Mira is a recent graduate of a master's program from the London School of Economics. She had reached out to me about a year ago regarding uh, research on her thesis. And she currently has her thesis on the notions of justice post-genocide in the Cambodian diaspora. In that process, I also found out that she herself is an adoptee from Cambodia. And as I mentioned on my social, I have been really passionate about sharing stories that I feel deserve to be highlighted and narratives that I feel have not had enough attention on. And I definitely feel like the story of adoptees have yet to really had their time in the light. So I am very, very honored to have Mira here on the podcast to share a little bit more light on that topic. Mira, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for creating this platform for members of the Cambodian community, whatever you know history they have, um, for them to express themselves and sort of relate with each other. Um, and especially relay information that other people may not know or have. So I applaud you for for creating this project. So thank you. Thank you, Mira. Well, let's start off with a little bit of introduction. Mira, why don't you tell me just a little bit about um, your master's program that you have uh, and that your thesis and what inspired you to study and get your master's in this topic? So I did a master's in human rights and politics. And I knew before ever doing the master's that I wanted to write my thesis on Cambodia. Um, The topics, I sort of um, hesitated between multiple topics, it being either about NGOs in Cambodia Mm -hmm. or about specifically the notion of justice after the genocide. And I wanted to explore the idea because I feel like not a lot of voice was given to Cambodians. And also looking at that in general, there's just so much diversity and how it affected people and the journeys of everyone after the genocide. And after seeing a lot of engagement in the Cambodian diaspora and also being from France myself, um, living in Paris and seeing a huge community of Cambodians, I wanted to see the impacts of that in those communities. So I did it with participants from the US and France and I just wanted to see what their notions of justice were and That project was really important to me because it allowed me to go into like something that wasn't really explored, especially looking at the U.S. and France, which were the two biggest um, countries that refugees um, and Cambodian immigrants have gone to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that bringing clarity and sort of awareness to those trajectories and stories were really important. Um, so yes, that's mainly why I was inspired to do this thesis. And obviously because I'm adopted from Cambodia myself and I've been going to Cambodia every year since I was 14 with an NGO that now I'm like a bigger part of. Yeah. So for me, that was really important to to delve into that subject. Yeah, when you mentioned just now <clears throat> the the injustices and the the voices that that 
didn't have a chance to shine during that period. What what do you can you be a little bit more specific? What do you what do you mean by that? What what kind of injustices and what kind of uh in what ways were did they not have a voice? I think that when you look even not just well you look at people on the move and people entering countries that are not their own whether it be refugees asylum seekers or immigrants um the experiences of those people who enter a new country aren't really heard because the most important thing is to assimilate and that's based on like the countries uh the welcoming countries like politics and for you to survive as an immigrant in in a new country, you believe that you have to integrate and assimilate in order to start a new life. And all these communities have different, you know, traumas, different histories, different reasons for coming to that country. And there's different histories within, like between that country itself and the country from where people are coming from. Um, And so when it comes to them, being able to speak about their experiences and the trauma that they've been through, Mm -hmm. there's no platform for them to sort of express it. And it's only now that we hear more and more about it. But at the time, like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was no no platform for them to express um, what they were going through and what they had been through. Because the most important sort of project, at least in France, it's all about, you know, integration, assimilation. And today we still deal with these these issues with the, you know, the income of refugees and immigrants coming right now. It's a huge discussion in the country Um, and it's a source of tension in politics. And I just think that migration stories are really important and that we have to pay more attention to the people that are on the move because they are agents of their own lives and you know they their experience should be heard and they shouldn't just be um sort of made into statistics and and all yeah. of that do you think that's a a a so you're saying that's a government systematic issue the fact that they mm-hmm. don't put enough attention—I mean, attention—on immigrants and refugees, and and making and not putting enough attention on what their that process is like from like a government standpoint, right? Yes, mm-hmm. uh, definitely. In France, there's a huge sort of process of integration that's put into place, and you are sort of. It's assumed that you have to put your sort of identity of origin to the side and assimilate to becoming French. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a lot of research on that. And and it does create tensions when it comes to religion, um, you know, culture. And what's really criticized here in France is what um, is called communitarism, which is communities existing within France it's it's very criticized by sort of the right and sort of center so there that diversity of culture at least when it comes to immigration Mm -hmm. is sort of disliked because it takes away from the Frenchness the French system the French identity right right and I guess I didn't mention this before but listeners uh Mira is from France. That's where her parents are from. That's where she is. She is currently living. Um, so you would say maybe then your career goals for the future, you know, what, what would that really look like for you? My aim is to eventually work in an international organization that Mm -hmm. specifically deals with children's rights, um, women's rights, being in the domain of human rights in Southeast Asia um, because I so I did also grow up in Southeast Asia even though I'm French I only lived in France for five years so I grew up in in East Asia and Southeast Asia 
for most of my life, mm-hmm. um, sort of in scattered periods. When, when I was a kid, after my adoption, then coming back to Europe, and then going back to Asia, meaning Japan and Singapore, mm-hmm. um, and growing up my teenage years over there. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to kind of go back to Southeast Asia um, and work in the human rights realm, children's rights realm, because there's so much to do. And I feel like I can bring a perspective as well that is very much needed, being myself, born in Southeast Asia, having lived there, but with perhaps a different experience. Mm-hmm. And also I did my studies in that. So really hoping to to see some change, positive change happen. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's just incredible. And it's it's always... It's always incredible to, to, to see people who step up um, for the rights of these children and for the rights of, of these, you know, um, Southeast Asian countries that, especially coming from you, who is a recent graduate, you have such a bright future in front of you. Obviously, you're so bright and smart. And so um, it's exciting for me to, to hear that and to hear that passionately from you. Thank you. Um, um. So let's let's dive into a little bit of your your past. Um, we were in the process of doing research uh, for your thesis, but in that process, I found out you are yes an adoptee from Cambodia. So which Cambod which Cambodian uh, adoptee center did your parents adopt you from? And just kind of briefly, what was that experience like for them? So my parents, who were expats, um, were living in Thailand at the time. And for them, they had always wanted to adopt. Um, At least my mom had always wanted to since she was a child. And she'd always wanted to make sure that she could enrich someone's life and make sure that they live a good childhood. And when they were living in Thailand, they decided that they weren't going to have their own children, but that they would adopt. And they tried adopting all over Southeast Asia. But as they went through that process, they realized that most adoption agencies were asking for money and they didn't want to do that. Um, And coincidentally, one day they ran into a couple that had just adopted from Cambodia towards the end of 1999. And so they decided to start a process in Cambodia in the beginning of the 2000s. And so that's when they met me. I think I was one month old when they met me. And basically, I was sort of, they didn't choose or anything. It was just like, oh, we have a baby girl that just entered the orphanage. And we think that you can adopt her. Um, And so... Yeah, they had to stay in Phnom Penh and they were adopting from the American orphanage, which I don't know the name of. And I don't think it still exists Um, because with my mom, when we went, we actually went to Cambodia this summer and we actually wanted to go to that orphanage um, over the summer. But we realized like it was too complicated and that it didn't really exist anymore. So we sort of put that aside. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they adopted me when I was, I think, three months old. And I think it's also part of um, adoption processes that you have to adopt um, orphans that are that have stayed in the orphanage for three months. And also all the paperwork takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after that, my parents stayed after the adoption, they stayed in Phnom Penh for perhaps two more months in a hotel with other parents that had adopted. And so it was a, a lot of adoptees and adoptants, um, sort of bonding on their experience and making sure, um, 
because they were going through similar things and sort of seeing the similarities in that process and supporting each other. And then after that, I went to live in Thailand with my parents, which wasn't too far away. Um, yeah. So, And you, um, I think you had mentioned that you were dropped off basically in front of the orphanage and there was no, you have no idea who your actual parents are. Yeah, that's something, at least that's when I would ask my parents or usually my mom, I would ask her. Um, she would always say that I was left in front of a door in a an orphanage in Kampung Cham, which is where I was possibly born. And that then I was moved from that orphanage to the Phnom Penh orphanage because there would be higher chances of me getting adopted there. Um, at least this is the story that they've told my mom. And my mom has never really questioned the, that story either because I think we're talking about a time as well. So to give context, in like the 1990s to 2000s, there were so many adopting parents, so many parents that wanted to adopt all over the US, France, the UK. And that's when the biggest number of adoptions happened, mm -hmm. the highest number. Um, and parents were coming with at least the majority, we can hope, were coming with very hopeful and positive mindsets of adopting children who truly needed a family to care mm -hmm. for them. And so my parents they really came in with that positive mindset. And so you don't really question the process either, um, which I've talked about with my parents multiple times since. But it's definitely hard conversations because when you do more research um, about this, you realize that that story is probably not true um, because there are a lot of basically fake stories that were made up about the reason why a child was an orphan um, and usually stories saying that this child was abandoned, which is also putting blame on the biological parents. So that's actually something when you do research on international adoption in the global South, you realize that's most of the stories that are told. But the reality behind that is that around that time, there was a huge market for children to be adopted, mm -hmm. especially in countries that had gone through their own sets of crises, civil wars, um, genocide. So Something just like, like Cambodia. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So definitely when you look at international adoptions at the time, um, there's a lot of questioning to do and there weren't any processes or systems put in place to ensure that children were protected. There's actually a convention that was adopted in 1993 um, at The Hague, which talked about protection of children during adoptions. This is 1993 and adoptions were taking place since the 70s. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple cases of corruption, sort of child markets, child trafficking that had happened all over the world, especially like Mali, South Korea. Mm -hmm. And actually South Korea had the highest number of adoptees um, in France. I think they adopted maybe like 70,000 or, or some. I may be incorrect, but I just read this book, which is about this, um, this South Korean French adoptee. And she, he talks about that whole system. Um, 
So it was, it's very interesting. Yeah. But I would like to say that, like, personally, on my end, I had a very good experience. And I was very lucky to be adopted by the parents that I had. Um, and then when you do sort of like questioning or if you would criticism about the adoption process, it doesn't come from a place of, you know, of hate or ungratefulness. It, sure. it comes from a place of having to question those systems because they have a history um, and some, a lot of adoptees have been badly affected by adoption. And I think their stories need to be heard as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like very heartbreaking, some stories that you hear yeah. about other adoptees. But personally, I've met a lot of, I've actually met coincidentally when when I was a teenager, the only other adoptees I've met were always Cambodian. Mm-hmm. And every time I met one, it was like we had like a special connection. Um, it was two two boys and they were at, one of them was a French adoptee, French Cambodian adoptee that I met in my school in Japan. And we'd pretend that we were like brothers and sisters because we could both speak French and we looked similar. Um, And then the second one was when I was living in Singapore, who was an American adoptee. So that was, it was very interesting. And we all were the same age, but it just shows as well how prevalent adoptions were at my year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which was also one of the last years that adoptions were possible, at least from France. France closed their adoptions um, with Cambodia in 2000s, in the early 2000s. Yeah. I think they reopened at one point in like 2008 and then closed it back again. But on the part of Cambodia, they closed it um they closed their adoptions in like the mid 2000s so every country sort of closed their adoptions at diff- with different countries at different in different years after big scandals and so in this case in Cambodia there were huge scandals in the 2000s of child trafficking mm-hmm. of children being stolen from from families Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. yeah sold off um yeah especially that that sort of um people don't talk about this but adoption was a huge market and it actually it brought a lot of money in for a lot of countries that were offering adoption yeah and it was interesting because I was reading about the, the effects. So there was more demand for children to be adopted than there were children that could be adopted. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the orphanages, most of the children who are, who are like in their, in their teenage years are children that have disabilities or that have um, illnesses and they haven't been adopted. And yet the bigger number of children being adopted are all babies. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that sort of shows you how healthy young babies um, were in demand and that's how that market got created. but also the, the adoption itself has shown to sort of impede any sort of social protection um, system to be developed in countries. Yeah. So, for example, in South Korea, the fact that there were so many adoptions meant that the government never put in place specific um, social laws to empower and support families and being able to take care of their children rather than 
having them um, have their children adopted. And many mothers were told, you will have, like, your child will have a brighter future if he or she grows up in the West, in a European country, or in, in the States, and you can't give that to your child. So the the causes for giving your child up are social, economic. So there's there's that sort of power relation as yeah. well between certain countries and the global south and sustaining that adoption process as well. Yeah, I mean, I I think there there was a lot that we just covered, but I think the main message here is that adoption, although, you know, the adoptees are incredible, most of them, or actually, I'm not sure, um, you at least feel very, very grateful to be adopted by such a great family. But the topic of adoption in general is a very kind of nuanced one, especially in countries that had gone through something as horrific as like a genocide, like the Khmer Rouge. And so, here we're looking at the country of Cambodia who had gone through the Khmer Rouge in the 70s, kind of leading up to the 80s. And then the aftermath of that had led to the country, first of all, in this position where a lot of maybe Western countries are looking at it and adoption at that 20-year period was such a high, which is I mean, in stats, the number of adoptees looks great, but the behind the scenes of that is that the country then starts looking that as kind of like a profit, (laughs) money-making, corrupted sort of thing. There's this other side of adoption where now that babies and young babies are in demand, if a country does not have the system and social justice is in place, then you just have young babies in demand, whether or not they are actually, you know, left and need help or whether or not they've been bought or stolen Mm -hmm. or taken, whatever it is. And so, yeah, you kind of go back to your, your, to the original question of like, you know, uh, what, what your origin story was. And it's like, well, that's the story I've been told, but in reality, you know, we don't know if that's true. Yeah. What um, what age was it for you that you started processing the fact that you were an adoptee and just in general growing up in some of the, you know, in some of your teenage years and younger years, what was that experience like being an adoptee? So I was, my parents were always very honest from the start and they were always like, yes, you're adopted. And they would make it as like a positive story, you know, like you're our daughter and you were adopted and we love you so much and very much like you are our daughter. Like, don't ever question that. Um, So I always knew that I was adopted and I had to very early on always have to say, oh, yeah, I am adopted. So it sort of becomes an identifier for you at least Mm -hmm. you always have to explain your situation because I'm here with two white parents and it's like it's sort of obvious that I'm adopted but in other cases when it perhaps isn't so obvious it just Mm -hmm. becomes something that you introduce yourself with Mm -hmm. um and when I was young I didn't have to do it as much because it's it's sort of clear but as you grow up, you're not with your parents all the time. Right. And yet it's such a big part of you. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, oh, people need to understand that I'm adopted somehow in your psyche as an adoptee. It, it's it's something that you sort of have to explain. Um, and I think a huge part of like having to explain it is like, why am I so, you know, culturally French? You know, why do, why do I have all these sort of like mannerisms? Because like when people see me, 
they're like, but you're Asian, you're Cambodian. So for me, it took a long time to actually say I'm Cambodian. Mm-hmm. And now, well, having gone back so many years, um, for so many years back to Cambodia and learning so much, discovering so much about my homeland, um, my, you know, culture of origin. Mm-hmm. Now I can say, like, at least when people ask where are you from, I can say I'm ethnically Cambodian whereas before it was like oh I'm French but then people would still question me about it um so I think the sort of journey of realizing um or it doesn't happen for every adoptee that they sort of have this connection to their country of origin to their birth country I was lucky enough to be close to Cambodia when I was living in Singapore that I could go back often and also for me growing up in 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 Asia in Southeast Asia in East Asia I had that connection to feeling at least Asian even though it's not you know Cambodian I had this um Asian identity that I could come to terms with Right. Um, when I know a lot of other adoptees, they don't come to terms with their birth country, their ethnicity. They don't recognize being from there mm-hmm. or it being part of them. Right. So I was lucky to to grow up with Asian friends, uh, Asian parents, all that. So I I had that, and I think it made it less hard for me. But I did also grow up in France when I was in primary school, where I was the only um, colored kid because I lived in the countryside Mm -hmm. in like a village of like 120 people. And luckily enough, my mom was sort of known around the, the villages and the towns because she was very involved um politically when it came to education and she's sort of made an an NGO to help children that had um education problems so everyone sort of knew our story and Mm -hmm. I never really went through any issues of like racism or discrimination specifically and Even if I did, I think I was a kid and didn't understand it because so I was five to 10 and I don't think I understood that I was different from my parents um, or different from my friends. Right. And it was also very lucky, as you mentioned, because she had that political status and that kind of power within the community. Even if somebody maybe wanted to say something, they probably were smart enough not to you know, and that is, and that, that is probably, um, I would imagine maybe work in your favor in, in that kind of sense. Exactly. I think mm-hmm. they, cause she helped a, a lot of people. And so they didn't really say anything or, I mean, I don't know if there's anything that they can say negative about adoption in itself. Yeah. Or to to me, they wouldn't see me as different, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And and luckily, a lot of people were very like um, socially aware and had enough awareness to understand that oh, you don't do you don't say certain things to um, an adoptee or person of color because it can be racist. But there were some some issues of like not well they were obviously like my friends would point out certain things about me because they were curious but that in itself is just a reflection of how abnormal it is to have a person of color in that Mm -hmm. part of France so they'd just be curious like 
oh, like, why is your nose, you know, so flat or your eyes are so, um, in French, it's, it's bridé, which means you have, I don't know how to say it in English. Big, big bold eyes or, you know, maybe different shaped kind of eyes. Yeah, different shape. Like the, they would just point out the shape of my eyes. But in France, it can be a, a it can be um, an insult. It's become a, like a racist insult, that, that specific mm-hmm. word. But it is also the word for the shape of my eyes. So they would just ask, oh, why are they like this? But it's not like I can answer, oh, like I'm like this because like just a lot of questioning that I did have to face when I was a kid, which did make me realize that I was different. And I did recognize that difference. But back then I didn't have an issue with it. It was more when I was growing up in Singapore and becoming um, a young woman and realizing that I was treated differently than my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And that being based on my ethnicity, especially in in Singapore, which is very um, colorist and assumes people's identities based on color. Um, Yeah. So... What what would you say then was was like your your biggest challenge as an adoptee? What do you feel like? Um, what do you feel like was was your biggest challenge? I think my biggest challenge was having to tell my parents that I had a different experience to them, and that that was based on the color of my skin or what I look like Mm -hmm. because I was raised with this sort of color blindness, Mm -hmm. which is prevalent in all of France. It's like, we're a very color blind country. Um, You can't use the word race because that has to do with like the Holocaust and discussions Mm -hmm. of race. So that's been erased of our constitution. Um, So any ethnic statistic is is illegal. You can't oh. have any statistic um, in the country based on ethnicity or race. So never will you see people identifying themselves as Asian or um, Black or white that doesn't exist in France. What usually happens is, yeah, it's, it's it's problematic and you're seeing the issues of it coming um, today. And I actually wrote sort of a, an essay on that as well, the color blindness in the, the French system, but it's it's problematic and it takes place in our language. And we only ask people their origins. That's why I perhaps use that word by, by mistake instead of saying birth country or in French it's origins and so origin means your country like where you came from but a lot of people are born in France they don't have any direct link to perhaps their country of origin maybe they've never been and so mm-hmm. sometimes it that's a sort of identity issue in France yeah um but because of that color blindness, my parents also had that. And it was very hard to tell them, oh, but I'm being, I'm being perceived differently than you. And so I'm treated differently as a result. They would always say, but that's not possible. You're our daughter. Um, you, why would you be treated differently? And, and that was something that was very hard to explain to them. Um, but luckily with like BLM um, in 2018, we were able to have those conversations and they were able to realize racism is a real thing, um, which is sometimes something that um, like at least white parents wouldn't realize, especially when they're raising their daughter, they wouldn't take race into or ethnicity into account. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's maybe some of the something that has to be worked on in transracial adoption. Um, oh, yeah, interracial adoption. Right. There needs to be more recognition of that difference and how your child is going to be affected. Um, and therefore, you can't pretend that they're, you know, white or no more different than you. Right. Um, a lot of adoptees definitely have um, issues with that. Um, and parents will listen to that differently. I was very lucky with my parents who were very, like they, they do a lot of reflection mm-hmm. um, and they've realized a lot of things and, and you can have those conversations with them and they recognize like their responsibility in certain things, not just to my, with my adoption, but just like in life in general. Yeah. So yeah. you mentioned to me, uh, you know, that, that, you you have a very lucky experience because from a young age your parents had put you through therapy right and they mm-hmm. had recognized from the very beginning that this whole experience for you is not going to be easy um mm-hmm. as you mentioned yeah sometimes they may they they might have not quite understood how people treat you differently because they don't get treated differently and they view you as as your as their daughter which I think only goes to show like how much they really love you. Right. Because they're like, this is, an, this is my daughter. Like, you know, how is that mm-hmm. possible? Um, exactly. I'm sure there are many other adoptees out there who, who didn't have that kind of experience. And so that's really a blessing that you have been able to, to have that kind, that kind of, mm-hmm. of growing up life. Yeah. That's definitely something I reflect on a lot. Sometimes it's like, it's, when you're adopted, as soon as you tell people, people will tell you, wow, you're so lucky. Um, and also they, they say, your parents must be so kind. That's actually something that I always hear when I say I'm adopted. They'll they say, oh, your parents must be so kind. And for me, in my case, like they really are amazing, loving people that I'm so grateful for. But I think for some other adoptees, that can be not the same experience. Right. Um, so I do, I feel that luck. And it's something that you, you, you live with. And you also feel more lucky um, compared to like the other orphans that were in the orphanage or to other children perhaps in Cambodia that could have been adopted that haven't been. Sometimes you feel that guilt, um, which perhaps explains like why I've always wanted to work in children's rights. But what I think is, is really like a mission for me is like you don't need to be adopted to have a better life. Like you can if we work on social systems that make sure that children are taken care of in their home countries and that the issues that exist in those countries are, you know, fought against and, and resolved and those children's, those children won't have to be adopted. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not saying adoption is bad in a, general I think it doesn't it doesn't put all children at a disadvantage but it doesn't advance give an advantage to all children either but it is part of a system which take children away from their home countries when we should be working on making their homes better for them so that they don't have to be taken away from their families and perhaps you know, child trafficking markets don't have to exist because of that. Um, right. I'd love to. I'd love to talk a little bit about your um, your visits back to Cambodia. 
And yes, I think that, you know, the, the origin of where these children that end up in orphanages really come from can be, can be, we don't like, we don't know, you know, it could have been through trafficking. It could have been through stealing or whatever it is. I do remember you, however, mentioning now zooming back into the effects, the after effects of the Khmer Rouge. Mm. I remember you mentioning that on a trip that you had taken to Cambodia, you had witnessed truly what the after effects of the Khmer Rouge could be, especially on people who had, who had survived the Khmer Rouge, women who had survived the Khmer Rouge, that really just truly were not in mental spaces to hold children. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that trip that you went on and kind of what you experienced? So, yeah, so with the, the first time I ever went back to Cambodia, at least since my adoption, was with this NGO called TASSEL, which I'm still a part of. And I joined it when I was um, 14 in high school. And so it's uh, an NGO that has created um, free schools to help children in their education and give them free English classes because a lot of the times with the Cambodian public school system, they don't have um, good English classes. And sometimes for for a lot of Cambodian students, they get sort of sponsorships abroad, um, perhaps in South Korea and China, and they can have some education that's better because the education system in Cambodia is still relatively um, bad and poor, but it's changing now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these, a lot of the students that we help, they truly want to come back to their community. Some of them have had sponsorships thanks to their levels in English and obviously mm-hmm. their skills and they want to come back and become teachers or lawyers. And that's something that I really value and and love about the NGO. And we also go visit families um, in very rural, er- rural areas in Batambang. And we listen to their stories, especially elderly people who we realize have so much to share, so much trauma that they've been through. And there are so many grandmas living alone in in houses that are really just just not it's not healthy and it's not a safe space so we we help a lot of them as well because they deserve to have even you know if they're elderly people to have their last years in a healthy safe loving space right and right. so and a lot of grandparents are also taking care of their grandchildren. Um, in a lot of cases, parents go off um, working either in Thailand or in cities um, to make money for the family. Or there are other cases where the parents have PTSD and for other reasons um, can't take care of their children. And so there was this one case where, and I remember it really well, it was my first time in Cambodia, and it was this little girl who is eight years old, um, who had a leg that um, wouldn't, wasn't functioning, because when she was born, her mother tried to kill her, because she had so much PTSD, because she herself grew up as a kid during the Khmer Rouge in the children's camps. And she had a lot of PTSD with um, hearing a baby cry. And she basically tried to kill her, her girl and stepped on her leg. And then she, she died 
um, later. And so that's why also that little girl was being raised by her grandma. Um, so for me, when I saw those cases of in, in these really rural areas, these stories of how the Khmer Rouge genocide has affected people and their ability to take care of their children and passing on that trauma to their children, it's such it's such a big part. Like all of Cambodia is affected by, you know, PTSD and the genocide. And and it's because of this trauma as well that women can more easily give their children away, thinking that they can't take care of them, which relates to adoption, or that if these children aren't adopted, they are raised with this trauma and sometimes violence mm-hmm. because it's it's not being the the needs, at least like health problems aren't being met, aren't being solved. There's nothing concrete that has been put in place to answer these PTSD issues. There were like many NGOs after the the genocide that came in, put some medical support, did some research, but then they left because that's sort of how humanitarian agencies work. Um, they come in, but then there's not that long-term support um, and you can't, they don't affect government policies either. Mm-hmm. And so today, that hope is that we can try to look at a, a better health system in Cambodia, at least, to answer to that consequence of the genocide, which many people have to live with, mm-hmm. and in rural areas don't have anything to, to help them. Yeah, you know, I remember when you told me that story when we, when we had, you know, discussed even prior to this recording, and I felt like just there's so many more of those types of stories that we don't know about. This unresolved PTSD of, of you know, women who end up having children, but because of their unresolved trauma, um, having flashbacks and and nightmares of what had what their child childhood was like and not and maybe thinking that it's it's better off that you know they don't have children and when they do the the kind of emotional uh regret or whatever may they may have feel they feel when they have a child and anything that comes along with that because of their unresolved trauma and you know you mentioned you know, when the baby would cry, she thought she thought of it as a threat. And it just reminded me of how during the Khmer Rouge at that time, uh, silence was everything. Silence was how you survived. You know, don't cry in front of people. This is what I had learned from my podcast and interviews with my own father. Even if somebody was being killed in front of you, if your parents were getting taken away from you, you couldn't cry. You couldn't make a sound. And that's probably what I thought maybe that mother was dealing with. That was she was going through. She had grew up like that. And um, I think it's just, uh, it just, it just kind of shows that like, there's so much work that needs to be done. There's so much, uh, there's so much trauma that is currently affecting the second and third generation. And, and, and especially in these rural areas you know it's it's different to be an adoptee like you who was able to kind of get out of that country or an immigrant like me where my parents were able to get out of the country and I was lucky to be born in a different country but some people had to stay in the country (laughs) and some people had to stay in the place and 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 see and be within the location of of where everything happened um and just kind of how that affects that that affects the relationship between adopt adoptees and that whole global crisis and how that increases demand and blah blah blah. So I just, you know, there's so many different aspects to this whole thing that I feel like 
people are still discovering, people are still shedding light on. Um, yeah, yeah. How did how did seeing that affect affect you? And I'm sure that probably made you just even more passionate about you what you wanted to do. But how did that affect you in terms of of what that relationship could be like? You don't know where your parents, who your parents are, where they are, but seeing that must have had some sort of an impact on you. I for sure. I think when I was 14 though, I was very much removed in the sense that I didn't grow up knowing about my culture or my history. Um, I did know about the genocide, but very generally. And I'd never done a lot of research on it either. And it's not my parents either that could really um, inform me on that. It was definitely with the NGO that I found out because we do a lot of, um, we, we focus a lot on the PTSD and how it's reflected in every aspect of life um, in Cambodia. And so with that, I found so much, like I, I learned so much about what really happened and heard so many stories, but I wouldn't specifically link it to my story or at least perhaps I just wasn't making that connection maybe to protect myself because it can be like quite painful to think that perhaps like your parents abandoned you because they couldn't deal with their trauma or perhaps like they didn't want you or something else happened which made them not be able to take care of you so there's, for me, there are so many possibilities of why I was given up, whether it be child trafficking or my parents actually not being able to take care of me or just a, an intersection of all that together. Right. Um, but definitely after a few years, I did think a lot about it. And so for me, I would tell myself that it was because of the PTSD and that for like I probably did come from a rural area and poor family specifically um with my skin color I can you know there's sort of a colorism or hierarchy where people assume that uh, darker skinned people are poor um to some extent it's like a reality in the Dem- demogra- demography of Cambodia and so that I probably came from a poor rural area and so that perhaps those factors came into place PTSD trauma poverty lack of education all that and so that's why I was a- abandoned or given um but and hearing those stories I would think about my birth parents a lot um, but I do, in my mind, I sort of assume that they are dead. Um, I don't know why specifically, but I do assume that. And I've never really tried to go looking for them. But I think that possibly one day I would like to. But I also know a lot about like Cambodia and realize that it's it's possibly like impossible to sort of find them just because of all the you know that it's just too complicated and there's no trace of it perhaps so at the same time I'm like when I look at Cambodia when I go back I don't always think of them. For me, my biggest concern is the children that are there, the families, the elderly people, and how we can like make things better for them. Right. Um, yeah. Do you think that 
being adoptee has made you stronger as a person? For sure. I think that it's given me sort of like a unique perspective on life. Um, I was lucky enough to have the, the possibility to have the education that I had and be able to, to, for example, do my master's thesis on this and be equipped with the, the education and skills to, to do that. And so I'm very grateful for that. And with my perspective as an adoptee and having kind of lived um, all over, it has made me stronger and more determined to, you know, dedicate and contribute my life to something that can allow me to change systems or policy that affects children and bring clarity to certain because I'm a huge history nerd to like bring clarity to certain parts of history that have been erased ignored or hidden so I think that's super important right now and so I take my experience as something that I can give back to the world um, so I think I'm, I'm quite lucky with that. And, you know, I don't want to give, like, I want to make the most out of my experience um, in a positive way. Well, I think it is, it is clear to all of our listeners that you um, have such a bright, bright future ahead of you. And that what, that's the kind of mentality that you're going to that's going to propel you to success, right? Sometimes it's not, we can look at our past and we can look at it in two ways. We can look at it as a burden or we can look at it as a gift. And I think the, I think the people who end up succeeding in life are the ones that take their, their past and turn it into something beautiful and use it as fuel and not as something that weighs you down. And clearly that's, that's what you do, Mira. Um, I really, really appreciate you having having spent this time with me on the podcast. I really believe that anybody who listens to this will have a better idea, at least the start of an idea of what the experience of an adoptee is like. And, and secondly, again, the impact that the Khmer Rouge, something that happened 40 years ago and how it's still affecting all different aspects of the country today, not only people within the country, but the people who had gone out of the country as well mm -hmm. and how they've gotten out and, and what those people are still dealing with. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time here. Um, I, uh, I don't know if you have any last words for, for all the listeners. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, for letting me share my perspective. Um, it's like, it, this is the first time that I really sort of delve into it. And I, I, I continue to all the time and you learn more um, every single time. So it's, it can be a tiring, frustrating sort of process, but I feel like it's important to delve into like the truth of things sometimes even when it's painful, because sometimes you can uncover something that can help others. And so I hope that my experience, other people can relate, other Cambodian adoptees, perhaps, um, because there's just, I think, so much that hasn't been said about the experience of adoptees, and specifically Cambodian adoptees having to deal with that, you know, Cambodian past or sometimes not them not being aware of it. So I hope that this helps people understand another sort of perspective of the Cambodian diaspora. I think I include myself in it now because mm -hmm. I've I I love Cambodia, I love the culture. 
it's my birth country and so we're all parts we're all different like puzzle parts of the the homeland but we've been scattered all over the world so that's how I see it kind of yeah yeah well thank you I am sure I am sure that people are going to get value out of this and if I have any listeners who are also adoptees please hit me up in the dms and you guys can connect I'm sure Mira would love to to uh to meet more Cambodian adoptees who have this kind of similar experience that she has for sure I would love to have discussions doesn't have to be about adoption specifically but I'm I would be so happy to meet other people as well that have a similar experience yeah well thank you so much Mira for your time thanks to you thank you so much for listening